Amen. Well, my name's Kyle. Welcome to Two Cities Church. And what you saw in that video was you saw James. He's one of our missionaries, and he's in the middle of nowhere in South Asia. You saw what was behind him. And what they're doing there is they're reaching UPGs. And if you don't know what a UPG is, that's okay. But when you become a Christian, you get a new vocabulary. So let me give you a, a new phrase. UPG stands for Unreached People Group. And when you see where they're standing in that video, they are in a place where there are no believers, there, are no, there is no Bible in their language, and there is no building uh, that would hold a church near them. And, and so we sent a team of six men. Here's what I'm so excited about. Five of them were from the same community group. None of them are from our staff. And they went to serve the full-time missionaries there for a week, and they saw people come to Christ and be baptized. It was incredibly exciting. And here's what I want you to know if you're new, you're checking this out, maybe you've been around for a while. We are all about world missions. We care about the neighborhood and the nations, right? The carpool line and the Congo. We care about all of it. And, uh, and so what we're doing here is we're, you might ask, okay, why are we sending people? Here, here's the reason. We go because Jesus Christ first came for us. That's what motivates our going is his coming. Because he was actually the first to go, right? He was the first to leave a family and, and leave a place and travel a long distance to reach a people. And now we just do that in response. In fact, here's how we think about missions here. Uh, missions exist because worship doesn't. That's what John Piper said years ago. That missions is just a mean to a greater end, which is worship. And so why are we showing you this video? Because we want, hear me say this. I mean, I'm taking a whole beginning of a sermon just to tell you this. We really want you to go on a short-term mission trip in the next few years. And if you look around here and every service is like this, you look around and you go, this would be a logistical nightmare. Make it hard on us. Make us have to book more trips. Make us have to send more teams. Make us have to raise up more leaders because there's just something special when you taste mission overseas. I've had multiple experiences of doing this, and one of my hopes is to take each one of my three kids before they graduate high school overseas. My wife, Margie, and I, this summer, we're going to Uganda to deepen our partnership with Compassion because my heart and soul, it's good for my heart and soul to be overseas and see real spiritual and financial poverty and taste mission, and I hope you'll do the same. This is our heart. And by, by the way, guys, you know, we always talk about this, our sending capacity, which is sending you know, church plants and mission teams and, and, and all that you saw there is more important than our seating capacity, but our seating capacity comes first in making room for our sending capacity. And if you look around here, I mean, uh, guys, last night at our Saturday night service, we had, it was the highest attended Saturday night, no, sorry, the highest attended service in the history of our church. It was, I mean, everybody, I mean, I, maybe it was partly the Super Bowl. I don't know, okay? <laughs> the, the committed Sunday night crew moved to Saturday. I don't know, okay? It was, it was very exciting. And then last service, now this service, what we're seeing, and I've never seen this happen in any church I've ever been a part of, but we now have more people coming to every service than we have seats in that service. And in most times, yet last night, they were pulling chairs out of that hallway because they ran out of seats in the lobby. So why am I telling you all this? And I wanna say this in the most humble spirit-filled, Christ-centered, winsome way. If you have been coming around, I'm not talking about first-time guests. I'm not talking you're here to see someone's baptism. I'm not talking like you're checking our church out for the first time. I'm not talking you're not a believer and someone brought you and you're a seeker and a skeptic. I'm talking there is, there is a group of you and you guys come around and you're takers and you're not givers and you're consumers and you're not contributors. And this is one of like three churches that you rotate going to. We need your seat. Now I hope, I'm not here to beat you up, I'm here to build you up. I actually hope you hear this and go, no, no, I wanna, I don't want, who wants to, who wants to raise their hand and say, I wanna be a taker, not a giver. I wanna give nothing, serve nobody and connect with nobody in this church. It's like, you know, no one wants to admit that. 
Our hope is everybody gets in because we are on, this is the year of leaping. And we are heading into this new home and hub and we wanna take all of you with us if you wanna be all in. But we have more people wanting to be here than we have seats. So if you're not all in, we love you. Maybe we'll see you in the new building. What I'm gonna do is I'm gonna pray and if you are a taker and not a giver, I'm gonna pray long enough for you to slip out during this prayer. But I hope more than that, all of you will lean in as we head into Joshua chapter five. Let's pray. Lord, what motivates our going is that you came and what motivates our discipleship is your call to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow you. And I don't know how anybody could read that and fall into consumer Christianity. Lord, but not just in our church, in every church in America, there are just consumers, Lord. And I pray against that spirit. I pray for the spirit of contributing. I pray there would be no freeloaders in this church, that everybody would be all in with their time, talent, treasure, as we are moving to a new home and hub, which will be a beacon of witness and worship in our city, Lord. And so would you call all of us up and in in this moment as we head toward this new season as a church? We pray this in your name. Amen. Guys, we live in the age of Amazon. I bet you're on that website all the time. It's a website. It's a company. It's an empire. And what, what Amazon has, has taught us, uh, or maybe what Amazon has figured out, and maybe what Amazon has tapped into, I don't know how to say it exactly, is that you and I don't like to wait. I mean, that's, that's what makes Amazon unique. It was the first people to be like, join Prime, which now we all have, and anything you order from anywhere in the world will be to your house in two days. In fact, have you ever, this is what's happening now for me at least, when I sign up on Amazon, when I'm buying something on Amazon, it says, if you order in the next five hours, 41 minutes and 12 seconds, you can have this tomorrow. Like, yeah, who wants to wait two days for this, right? Or you ever get it, you order like six different things and then it says, well, we could give them all to you in two days or we could ship them separately and you'll get some tomorrow. It's like, of course I want some of these tomorrow. I don't wanna wait till the next day. We don't like to wait. This is why how many of you are just so frustrated anytime you have to deal with traffic? Do you know what the Greek word for wait is? DMV, okay? You ever been there? <laughs> Guys, they did a study to basically see how long will people wait before they say something. They found out that if you're talking on the phone really loudly or talking in a movie theater, people wait about two minutes before they say, shh. They don't want to be rude. They found out if it's a crying baby, they'll wait an extra minute. They find out that the people, because they like their Starbucks and they like their drink and they know it's busy, they'll wait up to seven minutes in a line before complaining or looking around or asking what's going on. The average husband will wait 21 minutes for his wife to get ready before he says, honey, <laughs> I don't want to start a fight on our way to this, but we're, one of us is taking too long. Um, we'll wait 20 minutes in TSA before we say we got to get through. And we'll wait, I don't know what this says about our city, in a medical city, we'll wait 32 minutes at a doctor's office before we ask what's going on. And is the doctor ready to see me? Guys, we don't like to wait. And if you'll turn to Joshua 5, the people have to wait. Not at the DMV, not in the Starbucks line. They're having to wait on God's promises. And that's the type of waiting you're going to have to do. Some of you are single and you're waiting on a spouse. Some of you are infertile and you're waiting on kids. Some of you are sick and you're waiting on healing. There's lots of different types. We're all waiting to see the promises of God realized. And what's very interesting, and we'll see this, is on both sides of the Jordan. So in Joshua 3, remember they get to the Jordan and he says, all right, it's time to camp here for three days. It's like, I, 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 we're here, let's go. I don't wanna wait. So they had to wait on that side. Then we'll see this week in chapter five, they get to the other side of the Jordan and they have to wait at least, it appears from what we can put together from the text, they have to wait two weeks in the promised land before they fight their first battle at Jericho. 
So what we're going to look at today, here, here's kind of the theme of Joshua 5. What do you do while you wait? Well, and it depends on what type of waiting, right? Here's the most common type of waiting is delays, right? This is why you don't like to fly or if you don't, you know, you don't, for me, I like to fly out of Charlotte because I don't like to connect because I don't want to wait any longer. Because what happens with the delay is something outside of you is making you wait. <laughs> so that's one type of waiting. Then there's lingering. We don't use that word a lot, but lingering is when you're waiting on purpose because you don't want to leave. So usually when you start dating someone, like when Margie and I started dating, we had epically long dates because neither of us wanted to leave. It's like, let's eat dessert again, you know? <laughs> let's just drive around and talk to each other again. Neither of us wanted to leave. It's lingering. Sometimes we, we wait and it's procrastinating, right? It's like, I'm, I'm the one waiting. I'm the one stopping things. I'm the one holding on. You'll know you're procrastinating because you'll start to do a bunch of other things. You'll watch yourself. Like, I'm cleaning the kitchen again instead of making the phone call I need to make. But the type of waiting today is the type of waiting that prepares you, prepares you for your next battle. And so if you'll turn to Joshua chapter five, verse one, I'm gonna show you four things from the text today on how, what we do while we wait. Here it is, verse one. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites, those are the enemies of the people of God, who were beyond the Jordan to the west, and all the kings of the Canaanites, so those are enemies, so we got two kind of groups of enemies, who were by the sea, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over. Look at this, this is speaking of what happened to their enemies. Their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. So here's what's so interesting. The first thing you need to do or need to know while you wait is you need to have a different perspective on how your enemies view you. Do you see this? So here's what's interesting in the history of Israel. Remember they send the spies out. I don't wanna retell you that whole story, but there's the, the 12 spies go out. Remember 10 go back and basically the 10 who come back with a negative report, they basically say, we're, these guys are really big and we're really scared of them. And then when you read Deuteronomy, in Numbers, you actually realize, wait a second, God's enemies were more scared of God's people than God's people were scared of them. Okay, here's the question. Who are you afraid of that's actually more afraid of you? I don't mean this in some kind of self-help, triumphal way. Here's what I mean. The Bible says that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. The Bible says the same spirit that rose Christ from the dead lives in us. And so part of it is, part of what the Christian mentality is, is I've got to stop freezing and being afraid of my enemies and I need to start moving toward them. Now, when I say enemies, what am I talking about? Our enemies, by the way, are not other people. The Bible gives us three enemies. We have a spiritual enemy, Satan, an internal enemy, our flesh, and an external enemy, the world, right? I don't mean the people, the world, I mean the value system of the world. So tonight's the Super Bowl. What's every sponsored ad gonna be on the Super Bowl? a value system of the world trying to tell you why you're not satisfied with what you have and who you are. And what the world does, hey, by the way, actually what Satan does is he takes a value system or a lie of the world and he knows what's gonna appeal to your flesh. This is why different temptations hit different people differently. Satan, our spiritual enemy, takes a value system and applies it to our flesh. So I just wanna encourage you at the beginning to realize that because, not because of you, definitely not because of you or because of me, but because of, not because of who you are, but because of whose you are, you can actually fight the battles by faith and grace that God wants you to fight. Very short point, but I wanted you to understand this chapter opens up with they needed to have a different perspective on the enemies they were fighting. Secondly, and we're gonna camp out, they needed a procedure. So think of it this way, these are all gonna be peace. I hope you appreciate that, okay? Uh, so it's, it's first, it is um, a new perspective. Now they need a procedure. This is gonna get interesting. Look at this, verse two. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, remember, they're in the new land. Joshua's like, I'm ready to fight. Let's go. I got the guys. I got the, the people. I've got the, I've got the swords. And he says this. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives. And Joshua's like, we don't need the knives. I got swords. We'll fight the battle that way. Uh, not for that purpose, Joshua. Make flint knives 
and circumcised the sons of Israel a second time. Yikes. Okay, on the top of the list of things I was not expecting uh, was gonna be interesting about being a pastor was how much I'd have to talk about circumcision. It's like I'm in Genesis, we're talking about circumcision. I'm in Exodus, we're talking about circumcision. I'm in Galatians, we're talking about circumcision. Get ready to talk about circumcision just for a few minutes here, okay? Uh, and I gotta get kind of specific because it's kind of important. Uh, a couple things about circumcision. So why circumcision? I've told you before, it's like, you know, it's God's way to say I'm gonna be involved in the parts of you in the places that are most sensitive and most intimate in your life in the place you don't want me to be involved. But here's what, let me tell you what circumcision means. God wanted to mark the body to avoid hyper-spirituality because a lot of times we're gonna say, oh yeah, I'm de devoted to the Lord. Is your body devoted to the Lord? Oh yeah, God saved my soul. Okay, are you gonna live for him in your body? Now why that part of the male body? Because here's what God's saying. If that part of a man is devoted to me, all of the man will be devoted to me. And everybody knows that's true. And if that part of the man is not devoted to me, he's really just playing games. And he's not really all in because that's what he cares about most. The second thing, why circumcision? Why on that part of the man's body? It's because it's that part of a man's body that produces the next generation. And God wanted the husband and the wife to have a visible reminder that when they have kids, they're supposed to have godly kids. Now today I've gotta to get up here every once in a while, I've gotta talk about the goodness of kids and we should all wanna have kids. That's a new idea that people wouldn't wanna have kids. Back then everyone wanted to have kids. Circumcision was a reminder, you're supposed to have godly kids not just polite kids, not just good-looking kids, not just kids who excel academically and athletically, but godly kids. But the third is, it's supposed, it was God's way to mark them just as a mark on their body so that they would remember they're special, they're separated, they're significant. Now, when we read this, we go, I always think of what the modern person would say. The modern person would say something like this, oh, isn't that so silly that back then people marked their bodies? We still do this today. What are tattoos all about? Can a Christian get a tattoo? Well, Jesus has a tattoo in Revelation 19. It says, Lord of lords and king of kings, it's on his thigh. So can a Christian get a tattoo? Yes. Do I have any? No, I don't, okay. Uh, but you can get it. Now, here's the interesting thing about tattoos. Tattoos have three elements that, point, that remind us of circumcision. Tattoos are painful, permanent, and personal. I talked to people this last week about tattoos. And I was like, would you wanna get a tattoo if it wasn't painful? And they're like, no. Oh, interesting. The pain is part of the process. The pain is part of the honor. The pain is part of the story. I wouldn't wonder if it wasn't painful. What if it wasn't permanent? Right? This is why we were okay when our kid puts like a super, you know, Super Mario Brothers, like, you know, washable tattoo on their forehead. You're like, oh gosh. Okay, 30 minutes and a hot rag, we'll get that off. <laughs> but most people, I asked, would you want that tattoo if it was only gonna last for a year or 10 years? No, no, this is supposed to be, this is permanent. And then it's always personal. No one just gets like live, laugh, love on their back. Oh, <laughs> If you got that tattoo, repent, no. Um, <laughs> everybody gets something personal. My wife's name, the day my dad died, a scripture verse, a Hebrew word. It's all about the painful, the permanent, and the personal. Well, it's interesting because that's exactly what circumcision was. Today, we're a little bit more sophisticated, and so we learn to mark our bodies even by the clothes we wear. So what's up with this new athleisure wear? 
I know some of you are thinking, Kyle, that's how you dress sometimes. It is how I dress sometimes. <laughs> Athleisure wear says this, I like to dress nice, but at any moment I could go to the gym. And I, and I just might. That's what I'm saying. Um, there, how about outerwear, right? I mean, everybody dresses like they're headed to Boone. It's like, come on, you never go to Boone, you know? <laughs> but the, the Patagonia, like we have a pastor on our staff, and the other day he shows up and he's wearing a North Face vest, right? And this kind of shows you how, how things go out of style. He, he shows up with a North Face vest. And the next day he shows up with a North Face jacket. I said, dude, if 2004 comes back, you're ready. <laughs> And he laughed and I laughed because these things go out of style. Remember when Oakleys were cool? Were you old enough? Some of you? Then Ray-Bans were cool. Now Maui Gyms are cool. Guys, this happens with cups. So I was at a pastor's event a couple weeks ago, and as the gift, they gave us Tervis tumblers. I was like, this is like 20 years old. <laughs> these have, of course, pastors would give pastors that gift. This is so uncool. I'm like, the Tervis tumbler was cool, and then the Yeti was cool. And then the Hydro Flask was cool. And now how many of you ladies, don't raise your hand, have a Stanley Cup? And I'm not, ta- <laughs> and I'm not talking about the hockey tournament, okay? It, we, want, we want to mark ourselves. What is the, to get serious for a moment, what is the gender personal pronoun debate all about? And by the way, I'm not picking this fight. The church isn't picking this fight about gender personal pronouns. On the front page of the New York Times three weeks ago, there was a total front page article on personal preferred gender pronouns. And what was interesting is it was all about the New York liberal elites who don't like it. They're even like, what's going on? I'm sending my second grader to school. That's what I want them to learn. I don't want them to experience ideology and the gender spectrum in second grade. But what are pronouns about? Well, we know what they're about. I need to mark myself. And I need to make sure that everybody who ever speaks to me marks me exactly how I want to be marked, which is different than how I look. So it'll be confusing to everybody, but you'll have to remember it. I want to show you what happens next. So verse three says this. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Harloth. Okay, do you know what that literally means in the Hebrew? The hill of the foreskins. Some of you are like, that's a terrible neighborhood name, right? Some of you are like, I, I, I bought a house in the Hill of Foreskins. I can't sell it. Right? Yeah. <laughs> All the housing prices are going down in this part of the neighborhood. Uh, they call it the Hill of the Foreskins because when you have a hundred, a couple hundred thousand men get circumcised, it becomes the Hill of the Foreskins, okay? So this is what happened here. Just say it's in the Bible. And look, it says, verse four, and this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people of Israel who came out of Egypt, all the men of war who died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt, though all the people who had came out of or came out had been circumcised, yet all those who had been born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. So you see there's two generations, the older generation circumcised, the younger generation not circumcised. Verse six, for the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So here's what he basically says. I need to circumcise this next generation because they weren't circumcised in the wilderness. But the older generation, he goes out of our way to say they were circumcised, so they had the outward mark, but they didn't have the inward transformation. That was the older generation. And we call that generation here at Two Cities religiously lost. It's people who have a, here's what the Apostle Paul says, there's people who have a form of godliness, but no power. 
they've been baptized in a church a long time ago, but they don't really believe. They're in church, but they're not in Christ. And I think, it, it, again, I've lived in, it's, it's an interesting thought. I've now lived in central North Carolina longer than I lived in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I lived in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania for 18 years. I've lived in central North Carolina for 20 years. First Burlington, then Greensboro, then Durham, now here. And Winston is far and away the most religiously lost city I have ever seen. People go to church to see others and be seen, not to see God. And there is a religious, I think one of the main ways we have the outward mark is we have the religious language, even if we don't have the heart change. I was recently with a group of pastors and it was a connecting event for a group of pastors, there's eight of us. And they took us clay shooting. So we go out to shoot some clay and the guy who's, who owns the clay shooting place, he comes out and he sees a group of eight guys hanging out together. So he immediately starts telling like dirty jokes and telling like stories about like how he's been promiscuous and how he's sleeping around. And I'm thinking, this is about to get super awkward. <laughs> and one of the other pastors looks at me and goes, should we tell him? <laughs> I said, Let, you know, let's just see how this goes. Then after he finishes all that, he goes, so what do y'all do? It's like, oh. So we tell him in like the nicest way possible, no judgment. Hey, we're actually a group of pastors. He got spiritual and religious so quickly. He can turn, we, people can turn it on. All of a sudden, yeah, all, he first thing he goes, he goes, I teach Sunday school. I was like, where? <laughs> I need to warn people. <laughs> you teach Sunday school? He was talking about answers to prayer and this thing, and I'm just like, wow, this guy can turn, how many people can just turn on, especially if you grew up in the Christian home or Christian church, can turn on the religious language? Well, the people needed to be circumcised, but look what happens. Verse seven, so it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. So it's worth saying that obviously in the New Testament, circumcision is a circumcision of the heart. Is what, and I've told you that before. But the, what is the mark of being a believer? What is the mark of God in the New Testament? Ephesians 1.13 says that we are marked or sealed by the Holy Spirit. So it's not something God does to us. It's a person God puts in us. And if you want to know what is the mark of being a believer in the New Testament, the answer is a changed and transformed life by the Holy Spirit new affections, new desires. But look here, here's what happens during the circumcision. Verse eight, when the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. Now this is fascinating because I want us to think about this for a moment. Circumcision is strange for a couple reasons, some of what we already talked about, but here's the, here's the strange thing. They get into the land, they're ready to fight the battle. God says, you're not gonna fight the battle. First, you're gonna circumcise all of your men, which would be all the people who are gonna fight the war. It's like, okay, maybe you didn't think about this, but we're just told there, when you get circumcised, Again, not trying to go into too much detail here, but circumcising a grown man is different than circumcising a child. And the time for healing and recovery is much longer, usually at least a week. So here's what happened. When they, why not circumcise them on the other side of the Jordan? Because the Jordan was a barrier and boundary. They were safe on the other side of the Jordan because it was a mile wide and the people from Jericho couldn't come over. And now they're, now they're on the other side of the Jordan. Here's what's interesting. From Jericho, Jericho's up on a hill. Jericho can see the Jordan River and where they are. So the first thing that they do when they get into the new land is voluntarily disable themselves. Do you understand? They're going to, they're going to be vulnerable. They can't fight for at least a week after they circumcise themselves. What is the last thing that you did 
in obeying God that made you look weak, foolish, and vulnerable? For some people, it's like, you know, I'm using one of my weeks of vacation to go on a short-term mission trip. That looks weak and foolish to the world. It's like, well, dude, you only get three weeks, and why wouldn't you use all three of those weeks to go on vacation? Different value system. How about you're in middle school, you're in high school, you're in college, you're the person who's waiting till you're married. So you're not giving in to instant, cheap, immediate pleasure. You're not going to be part of the hookup, shackup, breakup culture. It's what God says to do, but when you tell someone you're doing that, you look weak, prude, foolish. This is such an important principle. God wants to build into your life things through obedience that make you have to trust him, right? That's what this was all about. This was all about, I've got to trust you for seven or eight days while I heal that you're going to protect me because I can't protect myself. Well, here's what's interesting. God built in to the church age, to this to the church, to the Christian life, two ways that he would forever make us have to trust him and make us vulnerable. It's the Lord's day, the Sabbath, and the tithe. So here's what the, here's what the Lord's day is saying, or taking the Sabbath, resting and treating one day unique and not working on that day. You're saying, God, I believe that you can do more in six days with me trusting you and depending on you than I could do trying to do everything I'm trying to do in seven days. I always think of Chick-fil-A. I always think when I drive by on a Sunday, I think a couple things. Man, it's closed. Darn, I'm hungry. <laughs> but the other, the other thing I always think is, this is so unstrategic from the world's perspective. You look foolish. It's like Sunday? Sunday? It's like the travel day for people. It's like the day people are going back in, into town. And you're going to close your store on one of the busiest days while, by the way, all your competitors are still open? Yeah. Different value system. And we've seen how God's blessed Chick-fil-A. We love Christian chicken, right? <laughs> and then the tithe. The tithe, you know? Some of you just are not there with that. You, you just have not taken that step. But here's what the, the tithe is. I'm going to trust God that God can do more with 90% in trusting him. Than, than with 100% of me trying to do it all by myself. This is that God's building into our lives. I have, this is why one of the reasons why if you are a believer, you can't live at the same lifestyle stage of the people who make the exact same amount of money as you. You have to live differently. I don't live like everybody who makes as much money as I do because I have a different value system. I give first to honor God. I save second to be wise. I live off the rest to teach myself contentment. So God has built these things into the life of the church to make us trust. It looks like we're vulnerable, but it's for us to trust and to depend on him. But then look what happens here. So they're in the new land. And uh, verse, uh, verse nine says this, and the Lord said to Joshua, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. So I told you, you need a new perspective on your enemies. You need a procedure, that's a heart procedure, and there, now you need a place. So Gilgal is the most important place in the Old Testament that we don't often talk about. Gilgal is the beachhead. If we think in military terms, and that's really what they were. Uh, th this was a military outfit. And they're, they're going, and the first thing they do is they find a beachhead in the promised land. They call it Gilgal. Now, Gilgal literally means rolling. So it says here, it rolled away the reproach of Egypt. What is reproach? Reproach is shame or disgrace. It, the reproach of Egypt, what's that about? It's about 
the, the sinful, shameful things they did in the past, God says, I want you to name this place Roland because at Gilgal, I'm going to remind you of the gospel. Because you go, where did you roll it all to? Where did you roll all my reproach to? When you get to the New Testament, you see that the place that it was rolled to is Romans 15.3 says, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on Christ. If you go, where does my sin, where does my shame go? The answer is it went to Christ and it went on the cross. So they call this place Gilgal. But here, I want you to think about this place with me for a second. Here's what it was, and tell me if it sounds like anything you've ever heard of. Um, this was the main place of communication and operations for the people of God in the promised land. It was the, it was the place where they got ready to fight their next battle. It was the place where if they won a battle, they came back and they celebrated together. It was a place where if they lost a battle, they came back and they processed defeat together. It was a place where they practiced both circumcision and the Passover. It was a place where when Saul is made to be the first king in Israel, years later, they go back to Gilgal to crown him. It's the place where Elijah decides when he's going to start a prophet school, the first residency in the Bible, he goes back to Gilgal. Does Gilgal sound like anything? It's the local church. It's the local visible church. What is Gilgal today? It's the local visible church. Here's why this is important. Because the only, please hear this, the only reason the people of Israel could be successful in the promised land and fight the battles they needed to fight was because they had Gilgal. Israel could not be successful in the promised land without Gilgal. A Christian cannot be fruitful in the world without the local church. And this is, this is, now we live in a society today where everybody's very individualistic, I get it. That's kind of the American spirit. And everybody talks about their personal relationship with Jesus Christ, which I believe that God saves people individually. Every person must come to Christ. But we don't often talk about the importance of the local church. Like you, you meet people in Winston-Salem and anywhere, but they think the local church is optional, have you one word? Uh, a great add-on if you have time. An, an extra. You ever meet people? I meet people like this in our city. It's like they're just, I think they're genuinely born again, but they're not in a local church. And if you meet people like this, and I've met many of them, they all have one thing in common. They're weird. I mean, I, I know it's not a theology, they're goofy. They're strange. Because that's actually what happens when you get out of community, by the way. You meet these people and they're all the same. They're like the same person. They're like an archetype. It's like, I know exactly who you are. You know, it's like, let me guess, dad doesn't want to be under authority. Dad can't get along with anybody. This is normally the story that it happens. And then let me guess, usually dad again. Dad's overly idealistic about what the church should be. When you meet like a Christian who's out, out, out of church, right, they're always idealistic about what the church should be. It's the same of meeting a single guy and he's like, yeah, I got the perfect woman. She's, she's super smart. She went to Harvard and, and she's better looking than me. I'm like, dude, that girl would never date you. And she doesn't exist. The mythical woman that you think you're gonna marry that's gonna meet all your needs or the mythical husband that you think you're gonna marry that's gonna meet all your needs, all of us who are married are just laughing. That doesn't mean marriage isn't a good thing. It means marriage is even better than you think. It's just very different than you think. And there's something special that happens when you join a local church and when you meet these people as well, their lives are a complete mess. A complete mess because they've taken their family and they've taken their wife and they've taken their kids out of church for decades. 
And everyone's like, Dad, why are you doing this? Why can't you just humble yourself? Why can't you just get along with people? Why do you have to be so critical of everything that happens all the time? Why do you have to be so religious? Why do you have to be so selfish? See, I think we need to recover. There's two things that need to be recovered in the Christian life, that it's gospel-centered and that it's church-shaped. We, we live in a society now, thank God, in the church, where we've recovered gospel-centered church. Yes. It's about Christ. It's about the cross. It's about repentance. It's about an empty tomb. It's about a bloody cross. It's about what Christ has done, not what, I've, what I do. It's about I'm a sinner and I need grace. That's great. We forgot the second part. The Christian life is cross-centered, gospel-centered, but it's church-shaped. It's meant to be shaped by the local church. So here they are at Gilgal. And by the way, this is the reason we have a, just a little behind the scenes if you're, for both of you that are interested in this. Um, that we, we, on our staff, we have a weekly meeting we call Air War. And we've been calling that for years. And it's basically a meeting about this gathering and how we get this gathering ready to be the air war of our whole church so that everybody in our church can get ready to fight their next battle. So what do we do here? We preach the word. We cast vision. We celebrate the sacraments. We sing and praise God together. We strengthen each other. We're sent out. And then we know we're coming back 52 times a year to celebrate victory and process defeat. This is what the local church is. Let me show you one other thing they do here at Gilgal. If you look at... uh, Verse 10, while the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening of the plains of Jericho. First time they keep the Passover in the new land. This is important because they kept it in Exodus 12 during the 10th plague. They kept it when they left Mount Sinai. That's in Numbers 8 or 9. And now they're keeping it for the first time in the promised land, but there's something interesting with it. Look at verse 11. And the day after the Passover, look, this is emphatic. On that very day, they ate the produce of the land, unleavened cakes, And they ate the produce of the land, and there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate at the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. So if you remember, while they were in the wilderness, for 40 years they had manna, right? Every day manna came. They had manna cakes and manna tacos and manna pizza and whatever. It was all manna. That's all they ate for 40 years. It was miraculous. And we're told they get into the, as soon as they get in the promised land, God is done providing for them in that way. God says, I'm going to be your provider, but how I'm going to provide for you will change over your life. It's like, we all know that. It's like, when you were little, God provided through your parents. And now God provides through you working. But here's, it's actually a warning. This is so important. So there's, if you read Numbers and Deuteronomy, God is almost completely positive about the new generation getting into the promise. I'm like, you're going to get in there and I'm going to give you victory. And it's, it's all positive, except for one warning that keeps coming up and up and up. And it's foreshadowed here. Here's what God says. Here's his main warning about the promised land. When you can feed yourself, don't forget me. Because when you have to every morning get out and there's no man unless God miraculously brings it, it's pretty easy to depend on God because you have to. I need God you to do a miracle. When you can learn agriculture and you can learn how to feed yourself, many people forget God. It's actually the, the story of, the, of God's people have been, they do what God says, they become prosperous, and then they forget about God. And, and this is why I genuinely believe, being a Christian for over 20 years now, the only way to fight against prosperity is generosity. 
And you have to, the great lie is you'll start being generous later. You know, I, my first job was at McDonald's. And I remember, you know, it's just like I was just taught by my youth pastor, if you get a dollar, you give a dime. If you get 10 bucks, you give a dollar. If you get 100 bucks, you give 10. If you get 1,000 bucks, you give 100. If you get 10,000, you give 1,000. And people keep thinking it's going to get easier to begin to be generous when I have more money. That's not true. So they had to learn this principle. I need to trust and depend on God and not forget him when I can feed myself. Finally, they need, you need a person to worship. So a new perspective, a procedure, a place, and a person to worship. Uh, verse 13, when Joshua was by Jericho, so we don't know what happened. Maybe he went on a prayer walk. He, he was already circumcised, so he didn't need to heal. So maybe while they were healing, he goes up. It says, he lifted up his eyes and looked. This, by the way, is going to be his burning bush moment. We all need a burning bush moment in our life. And behold, a man was standing before him with drawn sword in his hand. Now, this would you be a little scared if you woke up and there was some guy in your room with a drawn sword? <laughs> or you looked outside and there was some a guy with a drawn sword? Well, well, here's what we know. This is, this is what's called a theophany. This is the pre-incarnate Christ appearing. There's 12 of these in the Old Testament. We know that it's, it's the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ, not just an angel because one of the main rules with angels is don't worship them. And Joshua, we'll see by the end of this chapter, he worships the angel of the Lord and the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ, receives worship. Here's the principle. Before Jesus was born, he was alive. <laughs> like hurt your head. You're like, yeah, Jesus was born. When Jesus was born, a new person didn't need to come into existence. Jesus Christ needed to take on human flesh. So this is, he shows up in the Old Testament. Here he shows up as a warrior. Look what happens here. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or are you for our adversaries? By the way, our questions reveal our heart. You know that? Like my kids, all of their questions are about snacks and screens, right? In fact, my daughter was like, hey, dad, we should go on some more daddy-daughter dates this year. I'm like, that's a great idea. Let's do it. She goes, where do you want to go for dessert on every daddy-daughter date? I was like, do you want to go on Daddy Daughter Date to hang out with me or to eat dessert? And she paused. <laughs> and then she said both, okay? Um, but yeah, we, 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 our questions reveal our hearts. Some of you, right, the only question you ever ask is financial, and we just know it's coming. It's just you're the finance. That's all you ever think. Everything's finance. How much did that cost? How much is that going to cost? How much does he make? How did they afford that? What's the monthly payment? What will we need to pay them? It's just like you're telling on yourself. It's like it's the only thing you ever think about is finances. Most people, the only thing they ever think about that is think about is themselves. Every it's like we're sharing good news, we're sharing about something happening, and every and you're just thinking, how is this going to affect me? Our questions tell us a lot. He asks a question. He's asking this question: God, whose side are you on? And God's going to go. Wrong question wrong category. Well, look, what, look what God says. I love this. This is how you know the Bible was written by God and not by man, because think about it. If Israel's going to write this story down, they're going to say, and Joshua goes to the angel of the Lord, and the angel of the Lord says, Joshua, I'm on your side. I'm on the side of Israel. Look what he says instead. instead. Remember, he goes, God, whose side are you on? Verse 14, and he, this is the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ, and he said, no. Joshua's like, I gave you multiple choice. You did fill in the blank. <laughs> I gave you two options. You, you gave me a third option. Look, he says here. And he said, no, but I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. He said, basically the question, Joshua, and all of us, the question is not God, 
are you on my side or are you on his side? The question is, God, how do I get on your side? Jesus didn't come to take sides. He came to take charge, right? How many marriages, this could heal a marriage over time? Because marriages is like, is God on my side or my spouse's side? Wrong question, wrong category. Both of you need to work very, very hard to make sure you're on God's side and doing what God has said. The history of, go look over, like, I mean, over the last, Google this, I mean, over the last hundred years, both the Republicans and the Democrats have tried to say God's on their side. Everybody would like to have God on their side. God says, actually, here's what I want you to do. I want you to find out what I'm doing and where I'm working, and I want you to join me there. But here's what else is really interesting. Do you notice the angel of the Lord says to Joshua, no. Can God tell you no? I, I think it's a sign of a true believer. You want to know, how do, how do I know if I really believe? For some of you, God only tells you yes. It's really amazing how that works. God agrees with you on everything. Your life is perfect, and he just, no matter what you want to do and who you want to date and what you want to look at and where you want to spend and how you want to treat your spouse, it's amazing. God just keeps telling you yes. When you really realize the lordship of Christ is when you realize God can tell me no. I heard a lady said, she says, whenever people ask me, when did I become a Christian? She said, sometimes I get, she said, I really have kind of two answers. She said, there's the answer of like when I understood Jesus died for my sins and when I prayed to receive Christ and when I was baptized, she said, but then there was the moment where I realized God could tell me no. She said, and that's the moment where I maybe really became a Christian. That's the moment where I realized the lordship of Christ. Not just that Jesus is my savior, but that Jesus is my Lord. Well, look how this ends. Final thing says this, Joshua uh, 14 continued, and Joshua fell on his face to the earth and he worshiped. And he said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. What we see here is the principle that private visits with the Lord come before public victories. We see here with Joshua as it ends, he has his burning bush moment, he takes off his shoes, and we're reminded that personal surrender happens before public success. And I just wanna know, in a church like ours, where are the men and women who say, I will meet with God like Joshua met with God? Because it's interesting, in kind of the Christian culture, I know everybody's doing their devotions, and I think it's great. You know, in the new year, you started your devotional, and you get up, and you read your Bible for a few minutes, or maybe 30 minutes, or whatever. And everyone's real excited about Bible studies, and through the Bible in a year, and I think that's great, reading the Bible in a year. And everyone talks about their quiet time. When do you have your quiet time? You know, you open up your Bible, read your Bible a little bit. Where are the men and women who meet with God? who say, I got, went into my closet and I closed my door and I got on my face until when I got up, the imprint of the carpet was on my forehead. And I interceded for my kids. And I got to the place, because that's the place. The place of meeting with God is the place of surrender and submission. And I said, God, I'm willing to do whatever you want me to do in my marriage. That's the place of power. God, with my rebellious teenage daughter, I'm there. I'm ready to do whatever you want me to do. 
I'm there with my finances. I'm there with my career. I'm there with my sexuality. I'm there with alcohol. Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. So here's what's so powerful. Why did God appear to Joshua as a warrior? Let's think about it for a minute because two principles here. God will find you where you are and he will reveal himself to you as you need him. What Joshua needed was Joshua needed to know somebody else was gonna fight this battle with him. This is often what God will do. In the Old Testament, do you remember God sends out Abraham? Abraham's the great pilgrim. If you know that story, he says, leave your house and leave your family and go. And then early on in his journey, God, the first theophany in the Bible, God appears to Abraham. Do you know how God appears to Abraham? As a pilgrim. I'm here with you, man. We're gonna walk together. Jacob, do you remember Jacob? He's wrestling. I've wrecked my family. My brother hates me. And God, how does God reveal himself to Jacob? That famous scene as a wrestler. It's like, all right, Jacob, let's go, man. You need someone to wrestle with. How about Moses, 40 years of just boredom. God appears to him in a fire because his fire had burned out. Why did Jesus Christ come as a savior? I mean, that's not been his identity. If you wanna do some th theology, the Trinity in eternity past, Jesus has not always been a savior. He became a savior because that's what you and I needed. He said, all right, someone's gotta live a perfect life. I will become that. Someone needs to be a substitute. I will become that. Someone needs to die for sinners. I will do that. And so let me just encourage you, wherever you are, God will find you where you are and he will come dressed in clothes ready to help you where you are. Some of you go, man, I've got a lot of big decisions to make in my life. Get on your face before God and he will be to you a wonderful counselor. Some of you go, I have wrecked my whole life. God says, that's great because one of Jesus' names in the New Testament is a friend of sinners. Some of you just said, I just need some healing. Great, he will show up as your good shepherd. Some of you just have a horrible, I was meeting with a guy this week and we're having lunch and I find out that he never knew his dad. It's just heartbreaking. It's like dad leaves at two, marries some other lady, has whole family, he's never had contact with him. It's like, well, thank you for the promise in the Bible that God will be a father to the fatherless. Some of you need God to provide for you in a way. It's like God, like I, God says, I would love to show up as your provider. So if you'd close your eyes and let's pray with me, if you'll put your hands forward, just extend them just to receive from the Lord, wherever you are, God wants to meet you where you are. The principle from scripture is God meets you where you are, but he doesn't keep you where you are. And I don't know what you need. Some of you might say, God, <laughs> I am just so lonely. I need you to show up and be my friend. I need you to be the husband and bridegroom that you are to the church. I need to experience that. I need you to be the lover of my soul. Some of you, it is counsel. You've got decisions to make. Some of you just need authority. You say, Lord, I just need you to show up as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Some of you are wrestling with something and you say, God, show up as the great wrestler and wrestle with me. Lord, I pray for us as a church to just ask you to meet us where we are and bring to us what we need. But I pray for some of us, we need to go under the heart surgery, Lord. The, the story of Joshua 5 is before we can use our sword, we have to go under the knife. 
And it's the surgery of the heart, Lord, I pray you'd do it. Lord, I pray for, for others of us that there would just be a value for the local church. As we see how important Gilgal was to the people of Israel, we would recommit and re-understand how important the local church is to the Christian life here. And Lord, finally, I just pray you would make us men and women who really meet with you in submission and surrender. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen.